You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So I wonder how you think people change. My assumption is that most of us think people change. Oops. Um, Most of us think people change when their minds are convinced of one thing over another, which is why so much emphasis is put on education. And for good reason, right? Education is a valuable part of society, and it's even a valuable aspect of faith. Being informed is very helpful. And we prioritize education. We have things like pulpits and classrooms and lecture halls, and we trust that the information presented to us will change our worldview, which will in turn lead us to make better choices and live a more formative life. So when we do something out of step with that worldview, someone might respond with the phrase, what were you thinking? Which, will in, uh, which, which would be the right question to ask if we were fundamental knowers. But we're not. The African church father Augustine said, we are not fundamental knowers, we are fundamental lovers. Our decisions are not always or even primarily made by what we think is the best decision, as if we have weighed the pros and cons of each decision and decided that the risk, reward, return is worth it or not worth it. Most of the time, our decisions are based on one question that we're not even aware we're asking ourselves, which is, what do I want? Or, said another way, what do I desire? Or, what do I love? And maybe you think that's overstating it. So here's an example from James K. Smith's talk um, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, to prove that we are a desirous people and, in fact, a worshipful people. So think for a moment about a shopping mall. Now, most of you may hate shopping malls, and that's fine. Point still stands. Um, When you enter a shopping mall, logic typically goes away and desire kicks in. You aren't really in a place where products are going to contribute to your life. You are entering a sanctuary where the main goal is to play to your desire. Typically in a mall, where do your eyes go? They almost always go up. Uh, Why? Because there are vaulted ceilings typically with windows because you are more energized to buy something when you are hit with vitamin D over and over and over again. And then you walk down the center aisle, wandering through various chapels, we call them shops, browsing different offerings, we call them products, experiencing multi-sensory worship through lights, and music, and a welcome from sales attendants and associates. You see icons, we call them mannequins or posters, pointing to an idealized version of the good life. And then you make transactions at the altar, we call them cashier counters, in order to get close to that good life. The table or fast food, is typically at the center of the mall because it's easier to get you to stick around and stay for hours on end when you don't have to leave the premises to satisfy your hunger. And then you even receive a little benediction after every one of your purchases at the altar. Have a nice day. 
you are not typically making monetarily informed or functionality informed decisions because designers of shopping malls understand the best way to get you to buy something is to tap into your desire, not its functionality, right? Matthew McConaughey driving a Lincoln has absolutely nothing to do with the driving capability or turn radius of a Lincoln. And it has absolutely everything to do with you wanting to feel like Matthew McConaughey. L'Oreal having Eva Longoria as a spokesperson has everything to do with you wanting hair like Eva and nothing to do with the fact that the price of Eva's hair is a whole lot more than $12.99. It's a scheme. It's a scheme. Uh, in my pessimistic view of the world, we call it propaganda. They are not playing to our logic. They are playing to your affections. What do you want? Why is it that Christians who claim to have an alternative worldview and therefore claim to make alternative decisions based on that worldview enjoy getting drunk, are obsessed with the stock market, are digitally addicted, engage in premarital and non-marital sexual intimacy, are in massive amounts of consumer debt, and contribute to water cooler gossip whenever we get the chance? Why do we do those things? It's the same reason why those who don't follow Jesus do those things. Because we want to. As we round the corner on Lent, I've been thinking a lot about the intersection of the desires of our flesh and the gods of our city. We will never know how to engage someone with the story of God and his world if we're not able to diagnose what they believe is wrong with the world or with them and how they think they can reverse what has gone sideways. And as Jesus followers, this feels like a really important question to ask. We speak a lot about sin, the enmity and disparity between God and man. But sometimes it is helpful to diagnose sin specifically. Because to say the word sin in the broad sense of the category can feel a bit ambiguous. So what is sin really? Well, it's just worship of something that cannot hold the weight of worship. It's attempting to meet legitimate needs, physical, emotional, social, in illegitimate ways. All throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are challenged and rebuked by God for many things, but they all root themselves in one main thing, which is I, the, the idol worship, the adulterous affair of turning away from God to other gods. Now, we are not situated in the days and times of Scripture, nor in a culture that is really similar to the culture of Scripture at all. And yet the problems are literally the same, even though they mask themselves differently. Our city has idols. They have gods. Little gods that grab our attention, even if ever so slowly. And the only way that we can love the people of Knoxville is if we detach ourselves from the idols of Knoxville. It's the only way. But of course, the idols of Knoxville, Knoxville are so much of the air that we breathe that to really detach is to reorient much of our way of life. Because we want to be free, not enslaved. And as you'll see, when I say the idols of Knoxville, I don't merely mean the things that are out there that those people do, because the last time I checked, we all live in this little mountain town. Uh, 
So, so the idols of Knoxville are just as much our problem as they are theirs. There are probably a thousand idols that people are infatuated with at one point or another. So I tried to distill it down to just a few that I believe are so obvious because they are so insidious. It is in the water that we drink. So this is going to feel a little bit more like a cultural commentary than an expository sermon. But I believe if we are going to be the city, the alternative city on a hill that the scriptures talk about, our lives have to look different and actually more compelling. So what we read earlier is the fundamental challenge in our life, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And what I love about the scripture is that it's not so much of you should do this or you shouldn't do that. Uh, It's actually just more a stating of reality of how things are, right? So Jesus doesn't say things like, you should not serve both God and money. He just says, you can't. He's just stating a reality. He doesn't say you should give more. He just states a reality. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is merely a law of the universe that he has created. He doesn't say you should, you should not buy those pair of shoes or that designer jean. He just states a fact that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so in the scripture, Paul follows this line of thinking to the churches of Galatia when he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It is a statement about reality. To walk in the spirit, which is to read and obey the scriptures, to pause and listen for God, to seek wise counsel from other mentors, to practice the call of self-denial, is to not gratify your base appetite. And to walk in the flesh, which is primarily to listen to the appeal of every personal longing and desire you have, whether physical, social, sexual, relational, etc., is to deny the desires of the Spirit of God within you. There is a war going on inside of us. There's not so much a war going on out there as much as there's a war going on in here. Listen to what James says. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Desire at war within us. A friend with the world, an enemy of God. This does not mean that you aren't supposed to be friends with unbelievers, but it does mean that you are acutely aware of the gods that have their attention because they also grab your attention. So what are these gods exactly? What are the things that we are prone to drift toward like the slow and steady tide as you wade into the ocean and you have no idea you move 50 yards downstream until you get your bearings and realize, I don't see anybody on shore that I recognize. Each one of these I'm going to mention reveals a legitimate need and a legitimate desire and is met in an illegitimate way, which means we have to lean into the alternative. So, here we go. 
The first one is this, rugged individualism. We have a disease. It's called individualitis. I just made it up, but I diagnosed all of you. Uh, it permeates our being, right? Showing vulnerability, asking for help, confessing our need are all cardinal sins for those of us who believe in self-sufficiency. And the legitimate need and desire of rugged individualism is protection. It's a legitimate need, right? The idea that we would be shunned, shamed, cast out, condemned, unwelcome is a sincere fear. We want to be able to be brutally honest and embraced, even if we're being challenged, right? Fully known, fully loved. We want those things. The irony is that the way we protect ourselves from genuine community and meaningful relationship is isolation. You were not built for isolation. If you look around the past, I don't know, two years, <laughs> We loathe the phrase social distancing, right? We loathe that phrase. Not because we're tired of hearing people say it, because we hate the actual practice of it. And this stuff is so much a part of the DNA of our city that it persistently makes its way into the church. And for some of us, it can feel easy to say, well, I'm part of a church, I have community. There are so many people who are part of churches, maybe even this church, who actually use church as a cover to hide. We talk about community, but we are never known. Who knows you? Think of the cliches out there in our culture, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Pull yourself together. You are only responsible for you. These have to be some of the most exhausting phrases that we hear. Pull yourself together? No, I am an honest mess. I cannot pull myself together. I actually need you to come alongside me and remind me of who exactly I am. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That is American exceptionalism, not Jesus. I need help. I do not know what I'm doing. And there are some external and internal forces preventing me from do, doing that. So help me, please. And maybe you don't say those things, but they are inherently a part of the lexicon of our wonderful, terribly broken city. Why? Because it absolves us from responsibility. It, it absolves me from doing anything. We don't live in a communal or collectivist society, but here is the hard truth. You need other people specifically. You need the family of God, which is the beautiful alternative to rugged individualism. God gave you a new name, which means he gave you new siblings. And just like in your biological family, when you didn't choose who you were, you were going to be paired with as siblings, in a healthy church family, that is true too. Where you come face to face with yourself and you come face to face with somebody else. And both of you get exposed and both of you find healing. Henry Nouwen has a great line where he says, The first command of community is to forgive each other for not being God. The first command of community is to forgive each other for not being God. Maybe. One of our greatest challenges, specifically in the church, 
is the unrealistic expectation we place on everybody else and the belief that there is no expectation placed on me. Everybody else should be doing this for me, but I'm not going to do that for everybody else. The family of God will let you down this side of resurrection. It is difficult and hard and challenging, but the family of God is eternal, so it's probably best to go ahead and lean in. The American way says, I don't need you. It just says, I don't need you. We desperately need each other. We desperately need each other. All right, that was the easy idol. The rest of these get a little more dicey. All right, number two, political tribalism. I'm going to flash a couple pictures up here. This is a picture from the January 6th Capitol riot. This is a picture from a abortion rally. This is a picture that has become synonymous with our day and age and our culture. As is that one. This is a picture of both our previous president and our current president swearing in on their respective Bibles. I'm sure there are probably a lot of emotional reactions you're having right now, wherever you're at on the spectrum. And here's the deal. When it comes to politics, there is actually a legitimate need and desire for people. Politics exists, at least in our context, because people genuinely care about a just world. You may not envision getting to a just world the same way as your neighbor, and you may even have different definitions of what justice is. But you believe in certain policies and procedures that you think will get us to a more just and equitable society. The illegitimate way, however, is tribal allegiance to the donkey or elephant. And for many of us, politics is merely theatrical entertainment disguised as your way to salvation. I know so many people where politics is literally worship. It is what consumes time, energy, passion, conviction, anger, vitriol, articles. It is a lifestyle, and it is empty. And here is something somewhat controversial, but to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century is to be politically homeless. And that is actually a great thing because of the alternative. The alternative is the motto that got Christians killed in the first century. And it is this, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. So let me tell you where I am honestly at in this conversation. I don't really care who you vote for. 
how you believe complicated matters like healthcare should be divvied up or your opinion on taxation or big government, small government, gun control opinions. I have personal opinions, I have personal convictions. But I believe in a city like Knoxville, in a pluralistic society like America, a healthy church is going to have people across the political spectrum. So I love you and don't necessarily care what your ballot looks like on Tuesdays. And here's why. Part of me says, I am glad that there are Christians who are deeply committed to following Jesus in the political realm. Some of you are very, very educated on political matters. And I am thankful for you because you have done so much research for me and saved me so much time. Thank you. Uh, and there are good and sound and compelling arguments to be made about why we should care about politics. No question, I have personally made them. But the other part of me says that I wonder if Christians at some level should not be apolitical. Not, they don't, not that they don't care about people, but that they're not invested in the battle for political power. That is less about who gets into office and more about how they are called to personally leverage their body, soul, and mind for the good and flourishing of their neighbor. I probably fall between these two places most days. The need to care deeply about those in power because of its impact on people versus the need to disengage and reevaluate how I am personally caring about people. I know early followers of Jesus were not living in a democracy, but I find it fascinating that there's practically nothing said about what followers of Jesus in the first century thought about Near Eastern politics in the Bible or outside of it. And about 57 AD is when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. And 10 years later was when Emperor Nero set Christians on fire to light up his castle. And here is what the church in Rome would have heard a decade before this happened. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This does not describe the way we followers of Jesus have handled politics in this country practically ever. Because the idol of political tribalism is so pervasive and so alluring because it gives us what we all think we want, which is to win. We all want to win. It's no longer about finding common ground. It's actually about naming a common enemy. That's how tribes are built. Not about things I'm advocating for, but the people who I'm legitimately against. Rage is the new virtue, the voting booth is the new temple, and political slogans and catchphrases are the new creed. So let me paint a picture for you of where early followers of Jesus fell on the political map because of how it overlays to our current moment. The early church and its leadership was multi-ethnic, which is critical since the ethnic lines that were bridged between Jew and Gentile rivaled 
rivaled, and I would say in some ways superseded, the racist laws and evils in this country's history. See Ephesians 2 as the fruit of the gospel bearing witness across deep and challenging ethnic lines. Deep unity amidst wide diversity. In fact, you would almost, you would, you would, you would call them enemies because that's what they called themselves. The early church was also famous for its hospitality to the poor and suffering. It was common to care for the sick of your own tribe. It was unheard of to care for the sick and dying of any other tribe. So when the plagues swept in these cities, everybody fled except the early Christians who not only stayed, but fled to the cities to put their literal bodies on the line to care for the sick and the dying. The early church was committed to the image of God, even among the most smallest of humans. Abortion was not uh, a practice in the ancient Near East culture, but what something that was was called infant exposure, which would mean a woman would have a child, and then she would literally put the child in a dumpster and leave the child there. And so Christians said, no, we will take them. We will take them. The early church was also a sexual counterculture. It was expected, or assumed, I should say, in the culture, that married men would have sex with people of lower status, slaves, prostitutes, and children. And it was considered an unavoidable character trait because base appetites are irresistible. And Christians came along and engaged in covenantal, heterosexual, marital sex that ended up becoming the norm of the Roman culture. The church was much more egalitarian than the patriarchal uh, culture of Rome, treating each individual as equal, and this is key, seeing self, I'm sorry, seeing sexual self-control as an exercise in freedom, giving testimony that we are not merely pawns of our desires or fate. So you have the character, character traits of a multi-ethnic church that cares for the margins of a city. And you have those who, and you have a church that, that same church, or the same churches in Rome, that were caring for the tiniest of humans living in a sexually counter revolutionary way where freedom is experienced because self control is practiced. Two of these traits typically lean politically left, two of them politically right. And there is much more to say on all of those. I'm painting with a very, very broad brush. There is much nuance to be had here. I don't have the time to tease each one of those out, so thank you for the grace. But there is one more that cuts across, that cuts across both parties that neither of them practice today, that the early church was known for more than all of these four which is in a shame and honor culture where vengeance was expected, Christians taught the ethic of forgiveness and non-violence. They didn't ridicule their opponents. They didn't slander the opposite side of the aisle. And when they were killed because they would not bow to the king, they would emulate God himself when they would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I know it is hard and it is tempting, but we must stand against this idea that the politics of any kind is going to save the world while advocating for policies and procedures that will affect our neighbor greatly. The truth is we already have a king. 
And the exhortation that is given over and over again in the scripture is not a picture of powerful dominance, but of suffering love. It's not a conquering elephant or a conquering donkey. It is a sacrificial lamb. And one day, every Caesar in the history of the world is going to bow down to one king who showed us that power is not in winning, but in dying. We good? How are we doing? All right, great, cool. Next, unabated consumerism. Tony's going to get a lot better. Uh, here's what I mean by unabated, a constant strength and intensity, right? When it comes to our desire for stuff, we love stuff. I would argue in some ways we are addicted to stuff. And there is a legitimate need and desire in stuff. Meaning. We all desire meaning. There is a ache in all of us. We want our life to matter. We want it to count for something. The problem is we just want a lot of other stuff too. So how do we fill the hole in our heart in a city like Knoxville is merely to accumulate. We intake so much stuff. I told you last time, the average person has 300,000 items in their home. A successful middle to upper class lifestyle, a moral lifestyle in this community, in a city like Knoxville means you have made it. It doesn't matter if you live in the urban grid or suburban communities, there is an unspoken standard of what it means to thrive in this city, and we are all sort of clamoring for it. So instead of me telling you about the stuff we intake, let me just show you. Alcohol. This is two, so all these stats are two years ago, which means you can probably assume that the pandemic has greatly upticked all of these. In 2019, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 26% of people ages 18 and up reported that they engaged in binge drinking the previous month. A fourth of the people. About 15 million Americans struggle with alcohol use disorder. Some use it to cope, can't relax without alcohol. Some use it to celebrate. You cannot have fun without alcohol. What are your habits of alcohol use? It's a fair question to ask yourselves. What are your habits? It may be an exhortation and gift from God that you sit down and enjoy a glass of wine. Or it may be a crutch that is absolutely killing you. TV. On average, you watch four hours of TV each day. That's 28 hours a week or two months of nonstop TV watching per year. I realize that you may not do that as an individual, but you are part of the collective whole, and so you get thrown in with it. Uh, in a 65-year lifespan, that person will have spent nine years glued to the television. And 65 is not that old. <laughs> what, what are your TV viewing habits? Uh, what, what might it look like to reassess? What grid might you use to watch or monitor your TV usage in a way that is not hijacking your soul. iPhone. If you really want to assess where your priorities are, go to your iPhone, look at how many pickups, lock screens, and how much percentage of time you spend on certain apps. Again, 2019, but the most recent stats on this are we pick up our iPhones 
96 times a day. So that's once every 10 minutes. And again, I, there's just no doubt in my mind, the pandemic greatly increased that. Our attention, by the way, if you didn't know, is getting absolutely dominated by Silicon Valley. It is getting manipulated and dominated. The question is not, do you possess a smartphone? The question is, does your smartphone possess you? Buying. French sociologist Jean Baudrillard has said that in the West, materialism has become the dominant system of meaning, and he argues that atheism has not replaced Christianity. Shopping has. What does your Amazon recent orders look like? Where do you buy things like clothes from? Right, this is one example of 100. In the 60s, 95% of our clothes were made in America. 95% 60 years ago. Now, 2%. 2%. In the 60s, 10% of our budget was spent on clothes. 10% of a family's household budget was spent on clothes. Now, 4%. Why? Because they're cheap. They're made in other countries where corporate unions and healthcare and minimum wages are not part of the culture. So when you talk about a steal, you joke about a bargain. But the reality is you are most likely literally stealing from a single mother who is trapped in the fashion labor industry making less than $2 a day. And since we're on fasting, let's just end with food. According to the USDA, more than 130 billion pounds of food valued at $160 billion was uneaten in a given year. 31% of the available food supply went into the trash last year. Almost 50% of produce in the U.S. goes uneaten every year. And if you're like, you know what, I have a home garden. <laughs> Bad news. Uh, recent estimates show that for those of you who have your own garden, 11 billion pounds of excess food is grown but never consumed in our home and community gardens every year in this country. iPhones, TV, alcohol, shopping, food, in and of themselves, not inherently evil. But it's like every gift. It turns on a dime and becomes your God and absolutely owns you. It is what controls you. I am not trying to guilt anyone. What I'm trying to do is call out the gross idols in our midst. And consumption is at the very top. So what is the alternative? A life that is less about stuff. There is no entertainment slick enough, no consumption satisfactory enough to make your life happy. It won't work. What is meaningful, though, is life in God, where contentment comes from above. <laughs> Who contentment actually has a name. He walked among us. And generosity and sacrifice become your lifestyle. Now it's not, I have freedom to watch TV, I have freedom to drink alcohol, I have freedom to shop. Now it's actually, I have freedom not to. Because I am not enslaved by those things. They do not have mastery over me. I don't have to do those things because actually I am more free than those who would say I am free to do those things because they are not free necessarily. They are enslaved. And lastly, moral relativism. 
So we want to live in a way that is free and just, full of human flourishing. And Rebecca Rebecca McLaughlin gives a very helpful definition regarding this. She says, moral relativism is the belief that there is no universal truth and that all truth is specific to its culture and time. We all long for transcendence. The scripture calls it a groan in Romans 8. Eternal meaning, intimacy without suffering or evil. It's possibly the most legitimate desire in each of us, by the way. And honestly, this gets played out in much of the way we think about sex and sexuality. There has been a growing desire in recent years, at least in this country, over the issue of human rights, which is a great thing. And historically proven, by the way, to be a distinctively Christian vision of the world. There was no such thing as human rights before Christians entered the picture. But intermixed into the conversation of human rights is personal autonomy of every kind. And so the legitimate desire to have all your desires met, that is a legitimate desire of yours and it is a legitimate need of yours. But the illegitimate way is also having all your desires met. Here is the issue that is both in our city and in our church. It is the gracious, gentle rebuke of what the Bible calls sin, specifically around the issue of sexual sin. In her book, Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy says, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. I've realized the past couple of weeks that I've not said what I'm going to say from the platform yet, and we've been at church for over a year. Um, So let me as graciously and as succinctly and as clearly say what I believe Jesus' vision for sexuality is. We believe that Jesus, by the way, was single, that he never married, that he never had sex, and that he was the most fully alive and fully complete human to ever walk the earth. Sex is not identity, and it is not meaning. We believe that some in our church who are single will be single. And that the church has done a very, very poor job at enfolding folks who are not married into the family of God. We commit to the flourishing of folks in our community no matter why they are single. We believe that the biological family through the millennia is critical to a flourishing society primarily because it reflects the eternal family of God written through the ages and paramount to the story. We believe in covenantal heterosexual marriage as the place where sex is good and holy and beautiful, which means we believe that Jesus' vision for sex happens only in the confines of that covenant. We believe that hookup culture is unholy, a phony substitute, and harmful to people, reducing them to overnight dopamine kicks that only contribute to pain and shame. Coupled with that, we believe divorce in marriage was never designed or intended by God and that no-fault divorce may be one of the premier detrimental markers on us as a society. We realize divorce happens, and as a church, we deeply grieve it even if the reasons, even when the reasons are biblical. We believe 
and this is probably one of the most important things I'm going to say in this room. We believe the pornification of culture wreaks havoc on all men, women, and children. To watch porn is not trivial, nor is it something that every person, man, or woman struggles with. It is not something to be managed. It is something to be crucified. We believe the porn industry is the worst of capitalism with greed being the end goal and image bearers of God reduced as objects for personal pleasure and, by the way, for billions of dollars. The porn industry makes more money than the NFL, the NHL, and the NBA combined. That is a God. We believe the church has done a poor job of not just a poor job, I would argue an atrocious job, especially in this city, by the way, of being a welcoming space for discussing issues of sexuality. And we believe that those who are same-sex attracted have been overlooked, stereotyped, and silenced by the church. And we believe the culture is on the polar opposite end right now, specifically affirming everything that someone feels sexually, which puts those who wrestle with same-sex attraction in nearly an impossible position where the church becomes dangerous and the culture becomes dangerous. So we believe that there are those in the church who are same-sex attracted, and we believe they are no less human, no less integral to the life of the church, and in fact show those of us who are not same-sex attracted the narrow way. That to live a life of chastity, saying yes to Jesus, is what it means to enter the narrow gate. I have grown fond in saying that I probably will not see all of my same-sex attracted followers of Jesus in heaven because they will be so close to the throne and I will be so far away that the light will be blinding. And we believe in the most audacious aspect of God, which is grace. Nobody walks out this door sexually pure in every sense of the word. We are all broken people. None of us innocent. And yet heaven will only be full of sexual sinners. And that God invites each of us to more. So what, then, is the alternative to moral relativism that we're in? It is what we've been doing for the past several weeks. It's fasting. Self-denial means you will inherently go somewhere else to fill that desire. And the opportunity is to invite the Spirit of Jesus into your hunger. Because what you are longing for is not merely food, it's intimacy. And you can snack on sugar to quiet the ache of your stomach, but you will not be satisfied. It is only in the stillness and quiet presence of God where you discover intimacy, and the collateral damage of intimacy is holiness. The last part of the scripture today was, and those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. My heartbeat for this church is that Jesus would fill our hunger and our daily lives would be marked by two things, sacrificial love and sacrificial denial.
The word for worship of God in both private and public is holiness. And to starve our flesh is to detach ourselves from the idols of our city. And to do that is to live a life full of the Spirit, where we become the city of God on earth, where people may think we're weird, crazy, or I think what's coming is evil. But they cannot say, they cannot say, we do not take Jesus seriously. Or that we don't consider him the most beautiful being in the entire universe. They may say many, many things, but let it not be that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we need you. We are all broken people at some level in this room. And yet you have come to make us whole in every sense of the word, in every way. That is your deepest desire is intimacy with you, communion with you. And that out of that communion, we would become a city on a hill. I pray that for this church. It is my deepest desire for us to become an alternative city in our community. A, a small little place where we actually take Jesus seriously at some of the audacious things that he says. Lord, would you give us energy, but also would you give us a long vision a vision for years and years and years, not just one that burns with passion for three months and then withers, but one that says, I have reoriented my life around the way of Jesus and I will follow him to the grave. Give us that perseverance and endurance. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.